G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them, as I say every single week. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we can do it in the studio. So our apologies there. But as I said before, we want to continue with the programming, even with the COVID-19 making us change a few things around in order to do that. But today, I would like to introduce you to Claudia Hertenfelder, who is doing a PhD in Geography and Planning under the supervision of Professor Laura Cameron and Assistant Professor Carolyn Prouse. Welcome to Grad Chat, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be with you. Well, it's about time we got you on the show. <laughs> because I'm just going to fill people in a little bit. I, you know, I was really excited to get Claudia onto the show to help showcase her research for a change because she's very much one for helping the community and her you know, peers and colleagues showcase their research <laughs> and forgetting about her own from time to time. And it was actually interesting. It wasn't that long ago, pre-COVID-19, of course, that um, Claudia coordinated and did an awesome job and hosting the Beyond Boundaries conference that she put on for the SGPS or the Society of Graduate Professional Students and you know that was an amazing event over mm -hmm. a full weekend but now Claudia it's your time. <laughs> well thank you thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about some of my work and maybe fumble through some of my ideas as I'm like all PhD students I'm a bit foggy brained at times but thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> Oh, no worries at all. And actually, I thought, you know, before we actually get into your research, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about your higher education because it's taking you to many places. And she's actually from South Africa, mm -hmm. where you started your higher ed in journalism and political studies at the University of Johannesburg. Yes. And, and then, of course, you went and did your master's in social studies of gender at Lund University in Sweden. <laughs> Yeah, that was amazing. I was really lucky to, to get to live in Sweden for two years. Yeah, fantastic. And then, of course, then you went back to Joburg to do an MA in tourism and management. And, of course, now you're here. Quite a journey. Yeah, it's, I actually remember someone once turning to me and saying that if people look at my CV, it looks like I lack direction because every single, <laughs> every single degree is a different subject in essence but they're all connected I've, I've always had I think a deep interest in you know issues around uh, inequality and difference as well right. as labor and you know who does what work where that's kind of been a, a driving feature of the way I think but I've been really really lucky and I've worked very hard uh, to to go to all of these different places so uh, Sweden I was 
really uh, fortunate. I applied for a scholarship, which is, and actually I didn't get it. I wasn't the person who got the scholarship. I was waitlisted. And the person who got the scholarship turned down the opportunity and I was then awarded a scholarship to go to Lint, which is why I always say to people, if there's an opportunity, just try. <laughs> you know, you've got nothing well, you to never do. Know happen, exactly. <laughs> and then the second master's, the one in tourism and management was actually very similar to, to my first in that it focused on gender relations and who does what work, uh, but this time looking and focusing on the tourism industry in Botswana. And there again, I was actually being quite opportunistic. I was working as a researcher at the Human Sciences Research Council in, in South Africa. It's a parastatal that does research pertaining to South Africa and, and the rest of the continent. And a professor reached out to me and actually offered for me to do a PhD in the research I was working on. And I said, no, I'm not ready for a PhD yet. And very cheaply, very cheekily turned to him and said, but if you want to pay for me to do a master's, I will. To which he promptly agreed. And then I was awarded my second master's. So I didn't think that, Brilliant. I didn't think that kind of cheekiness worked, but there you have it. Um, yeah. Hey, look, if you don't give it a go, you never know. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Too many times I think, oh, I know, we know we're not, not going to be good enough for that. But you never know what's going to happen behind that closed door and everything. And if you're in the right place at the right time or asking at the right place and right time then then it's fantastic i'm glad that's really worked out so i mean it's it's interesting how much you've explored different cultures and countries as well mm-hmm. i mean south africa sweden and now canada you must be like me i love traveling and meeting new people oh, yeah it's i think it's a it's a cornerstone so i had never even left south africa until i was 18 and i got a rotary exchange opportunity um to switzerland and that kind of just opened up so for me like education and travel i've always had this interesting relationship i've, I've also lived in korea i lived in korea for about three years is teaching English. So kind of learning and living in a different place is very different to uh, passing through, which, I've, which I've, I've done a little bit of too, but it's really a, a different way of being. You're, you're kind of more sensitive to how things operate. Which I, I guess you probably also know from, from coming to Canada from, from Australia, right? Well, exactly. I mean, I love traveling, but staying, like I said, staying in one place more than a couple of weeks as a tourist is very, very different. Mm. And that's the way you really get to understand a society and things. So, you know, for me, in terms of long, long times in one place, it'd be, you know, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and now Canada. I mean, I've visited other places, but it's a little bit different. Like I said, visiting to actually staying and really getting into the culture yeah the culture the bureaucracy the the, the weather yeah. you, you you kind of start to find the rhythm of a place you do mm. and it's interesting because i'm looking <laughs> people are going to say how did you get from doing all the gender inequality things and and then when i'm going to i'm going to tell them <laughs> what your research topic is and thinking how does that actually fit in but um, you know you're going to explain it and like i said you like to look at things in a different sort of a different sort of way I think to what some people might think mm-hmm. of so without with that bit of a teaser I guess what I'm going to say to everyone is Claudia's research topic and remember she's in geography and planning that's her department is as is called cast out urbanites a comparative history and geography of how cows disappeared from Kingston and Cape Town mm-hmm. awesome title thank you <laughs> and everyone would think how can you go from gender equality equity you know all those sorts of things when most people think human 
Mm. How do you go from there to looking at cows? Well, that's that's a great question because I, actually for me, those two are very closely related. I had started out looking at gender relations, but not just any sort of gender relations. I was very concerned with what we took for granted. So the kinds of jobs and places where we expect, in quotation marks, to find women or men. And I was very interested in unpacking our taken for granted assumptions. Why is it that we find concentrations of women in administrative roles in policing jobs versus finding um, men doing, this is in South Africa, in Johannesburg, versus finding men actually going out on patrol or in tourism. Why is it that you find tourism in Botswana? Why is it that you find predominantly women who are doing housekeeping, but men are predominantly game drivers? So I was always very interested in the taken for granted assumptions of of gender relations. And while doing my second master's degree, one of these relations was actually the taken for granted relationship between men and their herds of cows. Uh, to be a man in Botswana is very much shaped also through your relationship with, with cows. And you'll notice that I use the word cows and not cattle, and I do that quite intentionally to, to disrupt the idea of cows and capital, because actually cattle is related to money. Cattle means chattel. And for me, cows are more than just property or money. So that's why I use the word cow instead of cattle. But what I started to realize is we've got several taken for granted assumptions of animals uh, and about their place in our societies, about the spaces they belong or don't belong. So I increasingly became interested in like asking these questions, why is it so taken for granted that you don't see a cow walking in Kingston? And that was kind of what led me down this whole pathway. It was a small assignment for, for in Laura Cameron's class where I created a walking tour about cows in Kingston. And the more I thought about it, the more I was just like, it's people think it's kind of a joke. No, like you're not going to see a cow in Kingston or a cow in Toronto unless it's at a special event or something and that kind of taken for grantedness of it is what got me interested Uh, and not to mention of course the inequality that's built into these relationships between cows and humans versus men and women there's a lot of interesting social overlaps when you consider power and space well it's interesting when you i mean apart from kingston and cape town i mean cows have been used for all sorts of things in throughout society Mm -hmm. whether you know that sacred cows in india and you know the cows are sacred in India and other um, other cultures, and then others is a uh, for us to make milk and cheese and those sorts of things. Another one is as you know is, is for the production of meat, and then there's those. I mean, for me, I could never be a farmer because I could never kill an animal. So to me, it would always be a pet, mm. big pet, but a pet nonetheless. <laughs> so I, I I find it interesting that you're looking at a cow because I mean. A cow is is really, really important. And also, when you look at kids these days, particularly those who have grown up in um, an urban setting, don't always understand the the functionality of a cow. Sometimes I've never even seen a cow. (laughs) So So for me, there are a couple of really interesting things in, in what you've just said is, yes, we as humans have a long, long, long and varied uh, history with, with cows. Uh, cows were, according to what we can tell so far, the second domesticated animals. So first were dogs about 15,000 years ago, and then were cows. And our relationship with cows has changed in a variety of contexts. But for me, in asking these questions, I'm also very importantly not 
uh, as you said, the functionality of a cow. I'm, I'm trying not to look at the cow as as something that is a, a function or an object, but rather as a as a being that is caught up in these relationships as well. That does kind of shift my lens quite dramatically. You know, viewing something as a a piece of property or a commodity versus a being that has a subjectivity or a life and um, what does yeah. that it, it changes the way in which you view these relationships if 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 something is a subject of a life but uh, i mean there's there's this thing breaking in alberta at the moment with covid 19 i don't know if you've seen the news cargo is a huge supplier of meat in, in canada and in the rest of the world they've had a huge outbreak yes of, of covid 19 in alberta and it's all come from a meat packing facility and there's a lot of just interesting relationships that happen in these kinds of meatpacking facilities in terms of human-to-human relations, but in terms of cow-to-human relations as well. So you've got 4,500 cows a day being you know, killed and uh, in this facility. Um, sorry, I'm going off on tangents. I always do this, but um, okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's just interesting to me to, when you shift the lens from viewing a cow as an object to viewing the cow as a subject that's shaped our history and very much been shaped by humans' desire to use them to use them in colonial projects. So cows have only been in North America for about 200 years, and they were very much part of... Really, they come across from Europe? Yeah, so they were. They came across, actually, on Christopher Columbus's second voyage. He brought, he brought cows across with him. The Spanish brought cows, the British brought cows, even the Swedes brought cows to, to North America. Uh, they've always kind of been implicated in human... Like empire and colonial projects, which is also a really interesting thing to 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 unpack. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. At the end of the day, there's there's a lot there, and I had no idea what I was getting into when I made that walking tour. But <laughs> that's always seems to be the way, right? You have an idea, and then you think, oh, and then you then you're down. Not not the proverbial rabbit hole, but, <laughs> but you're going along there. So why should we be thinking about the relationship between animals and cities in particular? So again, a good question. And the reason I think that animals and cities and cows in particular in cities are important, I kind of alluded to it a little bit just now when I was on my, my ramble, is... <laughs> You know, humans have a complicated relationship with cows, and one of the most dominant relationships we currently have with cows is we consume cows. We drink their milk and we eat their flesh, and that in and of itself is a huge contributor to climate change. It's one of the biggest contributors to climate change. So if you're looking at anything from water consumption to the amount of methane that's being produced to the amount of land that is being used, consumption of dairy and beef is just a massive strain on the environment. Who are the biggest consumers of dairy and beef? It's urbanites, it's people in cities, and it's people in particular cities and particular places in the world. So this in and of itself is a contemporary reason to consider the relationship between cities and cows, because the main relationship, the most dominant relationship with cows is, is us consuming and eating their bodies in cities, which impacts the environment. But also, a lot of cities and urban spaces were created, particularly in North America, were created around the needs of domesticated animals like cows. People would have settled in spaces that were close to water um, or had access to grasses that their cows or their pigs would have been able to eat. Uh, They would have strategized about where a city would have been, thinking about their animals in mind. Uh, Even the types of uh, 
infrastructure you see in some cities would have been shaped by the animals in that city. So cobblestone streets were often in place for horses uh, or for cows, um, something a lot of people about Kingston might not have realized. About 200 years ago, there was many cows as horses in Kingston's downtown core. That's right. I didn't know that. It's really interesting because cows – So. This is another reason to think about them in cities is they're kind of invisible nature. There's there's nothing, they are very taken for granted. People don't see anything exceptional in cows, so they tend to kind of go into the background. They become invisible, whereas horses, for example, very much form part of people's like historical imagination of how cities came to be. They can imagine horses pulling carriages, horses pulling lumber, uh, you know, horses delivering milk. But somehow a cow in a city center seems to be, you know, an absent reference in many ways. But cows were very much here in Kingston. They were they were live in the markets right downtown. They were often kept as backyard animals uh, in people's homes. Uh, that, this was the predominant way, actually. Families would have a family cow. And as... So it's really interesting to just consider how these relationships have changed over time. And what are the biggest reasons for why cows are no longer in many cities? Uh, is it because of technological changes? Is it because of shifts in terms of where we think animals belong and how we as humans should relate to them? Uh, and these are the types of questions I'm hoping to unpack in my in my thesis. Well, I think one of them is because we don't see the cow like we like you you alluded to before as um as a necessity for the household, whether it be as a pet or to provide milk for the family, um, because we can get family in a milk bottle mm. kind of thing. So, you know, how, which is why I would imagine with all those changes and things, cows got pushed out. We didn't need to have them in our backyard anymore. We could push them further well, out as as the city got bigger and bigger. So that's certainly one of the, one of the overarching themes currently seems to be that as there was changes in transportation networks so as trains for example became more accessible uh, you know you were able to expand beyond city limits there wasn't a need to have this kind of centralization um, you also had changes in pasteurization changes in refrigeration all of these things meant that the the shelf life of milk for example or of meat was able to stretch longer and further both in terms of time and in terms of distance but I suspect, so this is kind of, I think, the common, uh, in, in quotation marks, because this isn't something that's done in a huge capacity, but it is something that several people have started talking about in, in many ways. And often it seems to be technological advances or, or ideas of it's just more efficient, we can make more money if cows are not in the city, uh, we can sell better real estate off to people as opposed to using that real estate for cows if they're not here. So they tend to be very economic answers um, or very technological answers. But in my thesis, something I'm interested in is not just the economics and technology, which are certainly part of the reason for why I think big animals like cows have been pushed from cities. I suspect that the actual process of urbanization itself is reliant on relationships of belonging and unbelonging for animals. And I think that you start to see this in how bylaws are created, how animals' relationships with the space or, or a particular city change over time. Um, and a way to make this maybe accessible to listeners is to think about 
dogs. So dogs are very common in, in cities today. You'll see dogs everywhere. There's a lot of infrastructure that is being put in place in cities like Kingston with dog parks and fenced in areas and you know signs up saying pick up your dog poo. There's thinking in terms of bylaws and city policies about how dogs should belong in the space. But at the same time, you're starting to get laws creeping in that are changing how dogs, bodies, and subjectivity, sorry to use these big words, how they can be in a city. Um, so, for example, they have to be on a leash. There's no free-roaming dogs. Uh, some dogs have to have a muzzle on. They can't have an open mouth. Uh, and I suspect... So there's more restrictions coming in. More and more restrictions. And I suspect that maybe in 20 or 30 years' time, maybe we're not going to find large dogs in cities anymore. We'll only find smaller dogs. Or And these... So I think that there's something bigger going on, into, and this is kind of what I'm exploring. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that there's something bigger in terms of urbanization as a process itself and how it reproduces ideas of animals unbelonging, that animals can only belong in cities if they conform to very particular ideas of hum- that, that humans have. Other, and we see this now during COVID-19, really, that as humans have kind of gone back into their homes and become quieter and are driving less and are walking more, all of a sudden there are more foxes about, there are more coyotes, there are more, there are more animals making their presence known because they actually have space and capacity. Um, I don't know, that's not very clear. I know it's quite hard to, to contend with, but I'm, I'm interested in the process. But of- it's, an, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. I mean, it's all very interesting. So I guess with that, though, so why are you focusing on Kingston and Cape Town? Why those two cities, other than the fact you probably know both cities? Yeah. Um, so so I didn't grow up in, in Cape Town. I grew up in Johannesburg. Um, so it would have actually been kind of neat to compare Johannesburg and, and Kingston as two places that I've lived in. Um, so Kingston kind of came about, like I said, by chance. I was in, in a class and I was challenged with making a walking tour about something that people might not see. And I I created a walking tour about Kingston and cows. And as I, it was a relatively small assignment, but as I did the assignment, I realized that there was more and more there. And I came to Canada with the intention, the express intention of creating knowledge and research about, um, you know, either South Africa or, uh, you know, another city in in another African country. But South Africa is my home and I feel passionately about contributing to knowledge production there. And then when I realized that Kingston was Canada's first colonial capital and Cape Town was South Africa's first colonial capital under the British Empire, I thought, ooh, okay, that's an interesting colonial connection. But they've also got very different cow histories, if you will. So cows were, like I said, introduced to North America by colonizers. Um, You know, all the cows that are in Holsteins, the cow, they're the the stereotypical cow with the black and white that everyone thinks of. That's a Dutch cow, right? But it's kind of the quintessential cow that people think of. So they were brought to North America. Africa and Africans have a very long history with with cows dating back at least 5,000 years. So colonizers would have arrived in Cape in the Cape um, to set up, you know, what was first a trading post and then what became a colony with cows already there. And this for me was an interesting juxtaposition of how did colonizers start to manage their relationship between 
themselves and the people that they were finding in these new in quotation marks uh, lands and these different relationships with cows. And the reason this was interesting for me is what's happened in a lot of North America is cows and the British's capacity to farm cows was used as some sort of symbolism for saying we are more superior, we are more civilized, um, we are people, we are actually humans, we are not primitive because we know how to farm cows. So the actual taking care of domesticated animals was used as a way of privileging um, colonizers privileging themselves. So this is not to say that they were, but they used this as a way in which to justify their expansion into new lands or or stolen lands, their expansion into different territories. They saw themselves as being more civilized and superior. How did they, and this is how the comparison originally came about, how did they manage that conflict when they arrived in a place where people were really already very skilled, like pastoralists? So that was what started the original juxtaposition, then starting to see they were both harbors, they both traded in animals, uh, you know, the fur trade. Here in South Africa, there was trade with meat from the beginning. They both were the sites of their respective countries and colonies' first prisons. There were all these just interesting parallels, yeah, but I just thought it would be interesting, and that's actually the. I, originally, I was just like, I think it would be cool to compare these two random cities. <laughs> and well, it makes, it make, but it does make sense the fact of using the colonial part of it because that does that does make sense there. So you have to start somewhere, don't you? <laughs> you have to start somewhere, and um, it's it's changing now with with, with COVID nineteen. I might not actually manage to get to go to to Cape Town. South Africa is having a really. Uh, they're having a pretty tough time like everywhere else but there's a lot of interesting information to unpack there so I'm trying to figure out some strategies on how to make how to make this happen well, well I guess I mean that comes to the to the, the next question is you know what is the significance significance of cows in the research but also of all the animals you could have focused on mm. why cows so I think I think the significance of cows in and of themselves is because of how long our history is and, and arguably you could make this argument for for pigs and for chickens who I think actually receive less attention than cows in terms of academic and scholarly thought. More chickens die per year than than cows, therefore actually in in need of conversation about how we use these animals and how their history has evolved to this kind of use, uh, how their geographies work. But I think the reason I wanted to focus on domesticated animals is, one, I'm interested in how we've come to create a a huge structure that is centered on on the death of these animals. Like, how did this come to be? How did we come to have these massive factory farms where we don't think about animals? And for me, cows came in even more so because they're really huge animals in terms of thinking about the city. So people could imagine chickens in the city but they can't imagine cows and this for me yeah people can imagine horses in a city but they can't imagine cows in the city and again this taken for granted exclusion of cows almost the comical idea that cows could be in a city like kingston that for me just grabbed my attention in a way they they, they seem to me just completely not thought of as being able to inhabit a city like kingston whereas pigs and chickens i think people could conceive of them And then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, the relationship between um, climate change and cows, uh, 
and and urban consumption. I think all of these things coalesce to make, for me, cows a really important population to consider. Right. It's it's interesting because every time I see, this is going to sound pathetic, I know, but every time I see a cow, I just see these beautiful big eyes. Oh, yeah, they are beautiful. <laughs> There are, like a Jersey, a Jersey cow has to be one of the cutest things. And if ever you want to see a cow that's just impressive, look up a Neur cow, N-E-U-R. They're, they're an African breed of cow, uh, N-E-U-R. They have the biggest horns. So cows are actually, they're, they're supposed to have horns, um, and it's just beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely yeah. amazing. Okay, well... Thank you for so. It's, it's, it's a, I know. I mean, just to let everyone know. Claudia talked in 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 part of the conference that she put on. She, she was in one of the panels, and when she first started talking about cows, I went, "Oh my God, how are we getting onto cows?" And, <laughs> but the conversation was absolutely fantastic, which is why another reason for wanting you to come on the show because it's not something that most people would think about when we're looking at research. You know, it's very easy to put your head around looking at cancer, doing some sort of engineering feat or mm. looking up literature and stuff like this. But I think that's one of the nice things about the, the Department of Geography and Planning. It has so much scope in it because geography isn't like what we used to do, just have at school where it was more of the, the physical geography in terms of the rocks and environments and stuff like that. But there is the human side of it and, and now the sort of area that you've you've joined both human and animal mm. into your research and I think that's absolutely fascinating so I wish you the best of luck in finishing that and hopefully you can still get on and do what you want to do in your research under the extraordinary circumstances we're under right now well thank you thank you so much for having me and for dealing with my ramblings and um, <laughs> yes we'll figure it out there, there's obviously a lot to talk about with regards to cows so i'm yes. looking forward to, but, to writing and you know you should never you should never apologize for your ramblings because your ramblings actually make sense so when <laughs> I ramble, that, that's the problem <laughs> well thank you so, so much that's so kind of you you've got that scholarly ethic in your head and stuff it's, it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I really appreciate you coming on the show Claudia and like, and like I said best of luck with everything and, and stay safe yes yes you too you too and thank you for all you do Colette no worries at all matey so that's it everyone a, another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can load the show tomorrow from either iTunes Google Podcasts or Stitcher just type in a grad chat until next week this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.